I, I would like to see more cross-team collaboration. And so it, it excites me every time some niche industry decides to pick up the, the, the culture side of the DevOps transformation and start talking to each other. Hi, welcome to the Open at Intel podcast. I'm Katherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist here at Intel. Just recently, I got to talk with Kat Cosgrove, a lead developer advocate at Dell and Kubernetes release team member, about the beauty of DevOps culture, reinventing ourselves and our tech, and how to get involved in projects like Kubernetes. We cover all that and more. I know you'll enjoy this one, and please join us again for more important open source conversations just like this. You can find more from the team at open.intel at open.intel.com and at open at Intel on Twitter. So hey, so I'm talking to Kat Cosgrove today, who is fairly recently with Dell, uh, the lead a lead developer advocate with Dell, and also kind of a tech hero of mine because <laughs> yeah, you know, let's just put it out Thank there. You. I, I have followed you. I've, I've seen presentations you've given. I've seen, I, I watched, in fact, your presentation last year at Scale uh, oh. remotely. Thank you. I was not there in person, but, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you because there, well, there aren't enough cool women in tech, I guess. And, uh, we're working on that every day. We're working on it. We're working on it. It's a struggle, but we're working on it. It's better than it used to be. That is fair. That is fair. I've, I've been around, I guess a while now, which I'm not super comfortable admitting, but Hey, there it is. (laughs) I've been around quite a while. And when I was first and I was first, let's say, working in the open source world, which was mm-hmm. a while ago. And we, we like to throw around the number 2%, something like that. It was about 2% women, and I think maybe it's improved a bit. So anyway, I would love for you to introduce yourself just a little bit to people listening so they can share my appreciation. Sure. So my name is Kat Cosgrove. I am a lead developer advocate at Dell Technologies. I live in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um you might be asking yourself, what on earth is Dell doing with developer advocates? Um, it's a little bit weird of a developer advocacy position in that um, none of us actually like, talk about or sell Dell products much. My job is strictly educational and largely specifically around the topic of DevOps. So I spend a lot of time doing both internal and external education about DevOps tools, technologies, and culture. I'm a big believer that the the culture is necessary there. But outside of that, I have also been a member of the Kubernetes release team for the last seven releases, I think, Um, which is which is getting getting to be a little bit of, of a lot. But so I'm part of the team of people that helps cut Kubernetes releases for you. So you've always got a a fresh, clean one four times a year. You're so welcome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it takes a lot of people. It's a lot of moving it parts. It's a lot of sub teams to uh, make that process run smoothly, but it runs more and more smoothly every time. Um, so I've been involved in open source for several years now. I'm uh, a big, big fan of it, an aggressive proponent of it, um, both externally as just a thing that I enjoy to do and internal to Dell as a function of my job. So I, uh, I'm currently getting paid to do things that I actively enjoy, which is really nice. 
we, we have that in common, actually. You know, it's funny. You, you say people might wonder about Dell. What, you know, what's the developer advocate at Dell do? I think probably people wonder the same about us. Here yeah, what does the developer advocate at Intel do? Well, I get to talk to you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's cool. I don't know. I get to do a lot of really cool stuff. Intel is heavily involved in open source software. We contribute to yes. so many projects and people just don't necessarily realize that because Intel isn't the first name you think of when you think of let's Linux kernel. Intel's not necessarily the, the first name that people think of, but nope. hopefully after I talk about it enough, they will. But <laughs> uh, Dell is also a very large upstream contributor to the Linux yeah. kernel. And yeah, there like similar go. thing, people don't, um, people don't think about it at all. Yeah, like you make <laughs> chips, right? Yeah, yeah, we think hardware. We think gaming laptops or something when we think yeah. Intel. Um, or a monitor. <laughs> we don't necessarily think about open source software. So uh, yeah, yeah, we should hang out more. <laughs> we, can, we have a lot in common here. So what's interesting also is that we really do truly have a lot in common. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. I wanted to talk about how you got here because I think your story is kind of similar to mine. And then I don't have a computer science degree. I do not have that traditional, whatever that means, background. In fact, most people I know in technology don't, don't have yeah. that traditional background. So I don't know why we keep perpetuating the myth that that is the norm. But yeah, I, I have an art degree. I don't I don't even talk about this really. I never talk about this because I've been in tech so long that it's yeah. like ancient history and it doesn't really matter. But it's something you I've always been kind of hesitant to talk about. Um, I went to grad school for history of decorative arts. Oh, that's rad, wow. actually. Like what? But like, people are like, what? I don't understand. Like, yeah. what is that about? But, you know, I think it's an advantage. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about why you think it's an advantage. So, um, I did go to college, but I dropped out and I didn't go to college for computer science. I went to college for biochemical engineering. Um, and again, I oh, awesome. dropped out. So I started I, as a chemistry major and changed <laughs> midway through. I was like, I don't want to do, I don't, no more labs. No, it's, or, yeah, it's too much. Organic <laughs> chemistry almost killed me. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But I, I dropped out of college and I kind of just, vibed for a while. Um, I worked as a bartender for a while. I spent several years working at an independent video rental store in Memphis, Tennessee called Black Lodge Video. Um, like like 40-ish thousand titles in store versus like an average blockbuster, which was usually around 600 titles. And from both that and especially from bartending, I learned to gracefully handle people that I didn't like, but had to appear to like, or handle difficult people, um, sometimes, you know, actively antagonistic people without um, getting myself or anybody else into, into trouble. And handling people who are antagonistic has been it's incredibly uh, valuable. It's a very <laughs> valuable skill. Um, it's a very valuable yeah. skill as an engineer. It is a very valuable skill as a developer advocate whose job it is to talk to the public, right? But um, being being able to handle people who actively do not want the best for you uh, in a graceful way and still get what you want or need out of the interaction is is something that is super useful that I think that getting a computer science degree doesn't necessarily teach you. Um, that is one of those soft skills that mm -hmm. people give talks about at conferences that you, you kind of just have to, to learn through experience. Um, I don't think everybody needs to go work as a bartender or go work in, in retail or food service to, to learn that skill, but it, 
it is a valuable one. Yeah, can't you know? hurt. <laughs> and I, I for sure would not um, have the career that I have today if I didn't have those people skills, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think, God, I, you know, fortunately, I, I would say the open source communities I've been involved in have been pretty good about, let's say, codes of conduct and enforcement and just generally being good to each other. But that's not always the case, as we know. I mean, it's everybody's not. read stories about rants and, ga- you know, rants and issue cues, gatekeeping, uh, general ugliness, harassment, all yeah. of those things, you know. It- it happens a lot. Um, the Kubernetes community is is very welcoming and very aggressively intolerant of bad people, right? So mm-hmm. um, the Kubernetes project kind of gets to govern itself to an extent that other CNCF projects don't. Um, and it's also had much, much longer to develop a, a cultural identity of its own than any of the other CNCF projects. So we, we have like a, a very strongly ingrained culture of um, inclusion and making sure that everybody feels safe. Um, We also do not have this like one or 2% contributors are women issue, Um, at Mm -hmm. least not within the release team. We it's uh, I mean, it's still not where it should be. Right. But it is 50. (laughs) Yeah. It's not 50%, but it is um, pretty decent and it's better and better every cycle. So. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah. I, I was uh, involved in the Drupal community. Oh. and hmm. Which is <laughs> pretty... Oh, oh. <laughs> I feel like you might have a story there. but I, I've um, heard some drama. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're, you know, hey, no no community is without a little no bit. No community is without it, that's true. But, uh, but in, as, in terms of the, the number of women, it's always been considerably higher than the open source community as a whole, however yeah. you define that. But you know, for the most part, it's 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 been decent. It's been even, you know, I want to say I started tinkering at least with Drupal in about 2005. Mm. And it's consistently, even back then, I want to say it was probably 15% women. Oh, wow. Um, got to 20 something pretty, you know, by the time I was doing it very seriously, you know, maybe 15 years ago. But but yeah, I mean, it's it, it is refreshing to hear about other other communities that are doing a little bit better, better job. Yeah. And for like specifically um, people who speak in public, like um, I'm also frequently on the program committee for KubeCon. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have very, very strict rules about how many talks we need accepted from specific demographics. Mm -hmm. There are like hard and fast and published. This isn't like something we hide. These, these rules are, publicly available on the CNCF's website um, that determine like we need to have uh, X percent speakers who do not identify as men. We don't allow um, panels mm, that a, are all men. One, yeah. yeah. We, we, we don't allow panels. Um, we need X percent um, speakers who have never spoken at KubeCon before. Sometimes there's like a misconception that you only get accepted to speak at KubeCon if you're famous um, or something, but we, we are actually required to have a, a pretty significant portion of speakers who have never spoken at KubeCon before. I like that. So, the yeah. panel thing, that, that was one of the first things that I saw kind of widely adopted. And that to yeah. me, that's so obvious. It's just, there's no reason. Anymore. There's no excuse for it. it like ever really. <laughs> I can't yeah. say that there ever, ever has been, but there's just no excuse for that anymore. But yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, I kind of wanted to pivot a little bit and, and talk more about some things I've heard you talk about recently. Sorry. 
but I, but maybe from a little bit of a different angle. I think you know the technology community as a whole, the open source community. We 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 reinvent ourselves a lot because you have to. You have to keep you have to keep up to date on new technology. You have to constantly learn new things. You know how how short is the half life of technical skill, right? It's it, we're always on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we have a slight tendency to overestimate the uniqueness of our ideas yeah. or the level of innovation, right? We like to reinvent and pretend everything is new and, and shiny when really maybe we're just kind of mm-hmm. recycling just a tiny bit, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? We're building on previous knowledge. Yeah. That's the, the spirit of open source. But I, I wanted to talk about that a little bit, about how our history, let's say, and being aware of it and, and building on it in a, in a way that's more straightforward. So, maybe. yeah, I, I am strongly of the opinion that um, absolutely every advancement we have ever made in technology and computing has been a result of a need to do something faster and or at greater scale. Um, every single time. And once we nailed down the fundamentals, so like once we figured out virtualization uh, is is a good example, we, we couldn't fully virtualize anything until we figured out memory virtualization, which we did with the um, Atlas supercomputer. That was, that was the first uh, cracking of the virtual memory problem. And then the first commercially available machine that supported full virtualization was the um, IBM System 360-67, I think. And after we cracked that problem, everything we have done has just been, okay, how do we do this existing thing and how do we do it even faster? And sometimes, oftentimes really, the, the answer to that is you abstract away a pain point. Um, that slows you down. With uh, CICD, for instance, the first like fully fleshed out CICD tool we have was released in the um, mid 90s. And it's not in use today anymore. But that was born out of the need of a doctoral student at the University of Oslo to handle configuration on like a whole fleet of lab computers that had different environments. Um, and he handled that by abstracting everything away behind a DSL, uh, a domain-specific language. Before that, it would have been like running different make files on each machine, which is kind of like configuration management. But that was our first like IAC tool in the 90s. And then CICD, our first real one was... Um, also came out in the 90s. What was the name of that thing? Cruise Control. Cruise Control. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Cruise Control was uh, similarly revolutionary. It was like, we need to do this thing. We need to do it really, really fast. And let's abstract away the manual part with a tool that does the manual part for us, right? Cruise Control is like at its core, functionally, it's not doing anything different than like what Jenkins or Circle CI or whatever other CICD tool is like the core of that is the same. But when somebody asks you about like, where do you think CICD has its origins? They're not going to think of cruise control. When somebody asks you where infrastructure's code has its origins, they're not going to talk about a doctoral student in 1994 or whatever, right? They're going to talk about probably Terraform or they're mm-hmm. going to talk about 
Circle CI or whatever CI CD tool is hot right now, Argo, right? <laughs> um, each of these things like feels super, super new. Like Terraform feels like a really, really new new tool, but it it is not. It is solving the same problem that we've been solving for decades. It's just abstracting away more of it. It's it, it feels very much like every time um, a Silicon Valley exec on a TV show made a joke about, oh, it's like Uber for dog walking or whatever. <laughs> like every yes, single- I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. slapping a shiny new label or brand yeah. on an old idea. Yeah. It, it feels like that every time. And when you start like actually digging in and reading about the history of tooling that we think of today as like super new, especially within- the sphere of DevOps, because people think of DevOps as very new, you realize that we we have actually been doing this for a really long time. Like it is, it is super easy to argue that we have been doing infrastructure as code since the 70s. Because make files, make was first introduced to Unix in 1976, I think. So it's it's easy to argue that like mm, yeah, I, yeah, that's that. that's configuration that, yeah. management, right? Like yeah. it's yeah, you're, you're yeah, automating we, something. It feels good to feel like we're we're being super innovative, but but I think it's also you know I think there's an argument to be made that it it feels good to acknowledge the how established and reliable a technology yeah. is, right? I mean, you know, no, I think it's important to recognize that history. It's also important to like when when somebody first touches a tool like Terraform or something like that, it can feel really like unapproachable. It's difficult, right? Um, it, it feels hard. And then if you have the experience of before we had something like Terraform, it's, it's not so bad. You, you understand the why, like Terraform is the way it is because it's abstracting away these problems that we had with Chef or Puppet or any of its other predecessors, right? And if you understand like why it's painful, it's easier to get the like newer version of that tool. But yeah, generally I think we crack a problem once and then from then on, all we're doing is abstracting away pain points. Um, sometimes abstracting away those pain points involves creating more complexity that we can tolerate at that time, but eventually that complexity becomes a pain point. And 10 years later, somebody invents Uber for dog walking that <laughs> abstracts away that complexity that a decade ago we thought was acceptable, that that was a, a good trade-off. And it's been like that through the evolution of just about every technical tool I can think of. Yeah. Which isn't bad, you know, no, no, but I, knowing I, the, knowing the history makes it a little bit easier to grasp like why things are the way they are and guess at where they might go in the future. I think the, the complexity thing is that, you know, that's a whole conversation in itself. I mean, developers are humans. We are. I mean, you, for now, for now, <laughs> for <laughs> yeah. now we're humans. Um, and we, as humans, we tend to, we tend to overcomplicate, right. In the pursuit yeah. of, excellence and, and other things we do tend to get overcomplicated. I, I i love to talk about the the madness of the the cncf landscape image you know that graphic that we stressful all to look at yeah yeah it's overwhelming like how could anybody like if you're new 
you you look at something like that and you uh, your head explodes and you know how would you possibly know where to begin or you know you gotta just throw a dart at it and yeah like honestly that's why at kubecon there's always one or two talks that are just like walking you through the cncf landscape walking you through the ecosystem it's important because it really is like it's messy it's stressful to look at it's it's like a third of my job and i still don't really know what all of that stuff is yeah, like I, I gotta you, you end it. up you learn you learn what you need for the job that you're doing at a given time if you yeah. are doing a microservice kubernetes helm argo workflow uh you know something else terraform you know you, yeah. learn, you pick the pieces that are that are in your in your in your little scope but I, what i'm wondering I, I, there's a certain irony isn't it to, to the fact that in the pursuit of efficiency and 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 ease of development and yeah. developer experience and all of these things we've created this massive complexity that is completely overwhelming like the, you know as we've headed from monolithic to microservice as we've headed from you know whatever point a to frankly whatever point b inevitably we've yeah. gone down this path where we're all so um fully in our own little tiny little piece of the, the puzzle yeah. our tiny ecosystem it's so hard to see the bigger picture and there's there's frankly there's a security conversation you know as, as things get more complex it's hard, harder to secure and i don't know maybe you have some thoughts on that or maybe i'm just rambling but <laughs> it, it, it is interesting to me to, to think about you know the explosion of complexity. i think i think we're in the middle of taking a step um like one foot is still off the ground and our our forward foot's heel has not landed yet when we pushed off and began to take that step, it was, you know, containerizing applications and breaking them out into microservices becoming kind of like the de facto standard um, container orchestration tools like Kubernetes bursting into the mainstream rather than just being like a thing that nerds cared about. Um, we have not yet figured out reducing the complexity to a point where it's palatable without a whole fleet of people whose literal specialty it is to deal with all of these things, um, the tools and platforms to kind of make that complexity seem less daunting are not quite there yet. But mm-hmm. I, I think we are we are in the middle of the of the step towards um, right. the next leap. But we're we're seeing um, platform engineering as a concept rising, um, which I have potentially controversial feelings about oh. but i think that that is moving in the right direction what, what uh, are those, would, would you care to share the potentially mm, controversial feelings yeah i <laughs> i i don't have an issue with the term platform engineering um but i don't like the statement from some people who buy twitter ads that it is um replacing DevOps. I don't see Ah. the two as being like incompatible. Um, I don't even see the two really as being distinctly different. I think that platform engineering is just an implementation of DevOps tools and methodologies to a specific goal. Um, I I don't think that they are like, they're they're, they're not in conflict, right? But um as a what in my opinion is a marketing stunt um some people are pushing it as being um incompatible with devops and i do not like that because i think that it is uh doing that is in direct conflict with the ideals of devops which um rely very heavily on 
community and open communication and working together. And this is uh, like very coming across as very confrontational um, from the platform engineering ads. And I do not appreciate that, but um, I think platform engineering is a good thing. I think the way that it is being sold to people is bad. So maybe you would prefer embracing the idea of building upon existing established concepts. It doesn't have to be reinvented, right? Yeah. Something you mentioned earlier when you were introducing yourself is mm-hmm. that you are uh, you are part of the release process for new Kubernetes releases. Yeah. And I know that's something that you, you have feelings about, <laughs> about, <laughs> you know, let's say that the unsung heroes of the open source world, right? There's so much work that goes into something like that. There is. Uh, so the release team for Kubernetes is made up of several sub teams. Um, this cycle, I am on the docs team, but I've also been on the comms team. There is a CI signal team, an enhancements team, a release notes team. And each of these teams is made up of a team lead and five-ish shadows. It depends. Plus a release lead and their shadows. It's like 30 or 40 people involved in the process of releasing every version of Kubernetes. And we do this multiple times a year. Um, It is like herding cats. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of the time it is chasing down cap owners or chasing down SIG leads to get things reviewed, to get pull requests actually open, to find out if things are going to hit deadlines. It's, it's a lot of work and we do this for free. It's worth noting. Um, Many of us are doing this in our free time. We're not being paid by our employers to do it. I'm very lucky in that Dell has me do this on company time, but that is not true for all members of the release team or even most members of the release team. Um, We, we don't get any outside funding to, to do that. So that is, that is purely for the love of the game and to make sure that everybody's got a fresh, stable, Kubernetes release, but um, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. And if you are unsure of how to get involved in the Kubernetes community and you would like to get involved, the release team is actually a pretty good way to start. Um, shadowing is is a good way to get in the door and kind of figure out like what SIGs you might want to actively participate in. That's great advice. So, you know, a welcoming open source community is half the battle. I mean, it is. Really and we, is. we always need more shadows. So if, uh, if anybody listening is interested, uh, we, we really, we always need more shadows. Please, please apply. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I, I think there are, there are a lot of, or it used to be, I mean, you know, I'm not sure that it's the case anymore, but I feel like there are certain roles that, that get a lot of glory in the open source world. There's yes. this, you know, you hear that, you know, line about, you know, 10x developer, whatever oh, that means, you know, nobody wants to work with those people. No, I don't even know what that means. Like, honestly, I don't no. <laughs> but you know, there, there are, let's say glory thing, gl- glory jobs and glory positions and contributors or whatever. But there, yeah. then there's the sort of like, there's the, I wouldn't say invisible, but more hidden work. Yeah. Um, and, I have strong a strong opinion there. I have one answer, and it's technical writers. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wish I were a good one, but I come from, I come from a publishing background, so I I, I definitely appreciate the uh, yeah the, uh, I, vote of confidence there. They just don't um, they don't get enough attention, 
Um, they don't get enough appreciation. They are often wildly overworked and under-resourced. And they're also not paid anywhere near enough. Um, personally, I think technical writers should be paid more like software engineers are. Um, they get better documentation. <laughs> yeah, they, they have to understand things well enough to document it well. So um, I think that they should be compensated accordingly. And without them, you you would not have good documentation. I also think it is a role that companies tend not to hire for um, mm -hmm. when they should. They, they think that that is a thing that they can put off and just have their engineers uh, document it. There's like a, a myth of self-documenting code. That does not exist. That, that does not, that's not Definitely real. Difficult. Yeah. I, I, you can write great I, doc strings, right? That yeah, can be exactly. ripped out yep. into, yep. into docs, but like that's, unless your engineer is also a technical writer, they're not necessarily going to be communicating the expectations of the, the code of the API of the whatever in a way that is uh, usable to people other than themselves. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Uh, yeah, I I like to go back to. Well, I mean, of course, first of all, w w once you once you you're getting people to read the documentation, mm -hmm. you're, you're of course halfway there too because there's a whole oh for sure there's a whole yeah there's a, a lack of that <laughs> ability there sometimes definitely <laughs> a skill I had to learn personally reading yeah. docs that yeah. that was something I had a lot of but uh, making hubris. them approachable. <laughs> Yeah, it's also you know immensely helpful. Um, there was a woman who I I saw in South by Southwest many many years ago who kind of disappeared from from the tech world because being a woman in tech is especially kind of sucks. Fifteen years ago was pretty terrible, and you know some people had to literally just leave for yeah. online online harassment. But this woman had a presentation. And the the essence of it was, <laughs> and it was more about like design and UX and stuff. But it was, you know, what you you think your users are pouring over, carefully pouring over your documentation, pouring over a manual, <laughs> learning how everything intricately works, and really they're just giving your their laptop the finger because they're yeah. like they're yeah anyway. So so making all of that stuff easily digestible and easily, you know, uh, understandable is so valuable and often overlooked. I think. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to go back to this idea of new and old, which I really like being a being a, a former historian, I guess. I don't know. But I so we talked about kind of like reinventing and slapping new labels mm -hmm. on old ideas. But what is new? Like what, what are you like really excited about that that feels new and fresh and, and, and exciting? Mm, what feels new and fresh and exciting? You know, every once in a while something feels new and fresh and exciting, and then I go like digging around and find that it's like something we've had for 40 years. It's all been done before. <laughs> it's all been done before. Um, in in software and in, in my specific line of work, honestly, there isn't a lot of tooling that feels truly fresh and new. It all feels like something that was built to solve a problem that I'm having with an adjacent or like precursor platform, which is fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. We should, we should be um, marching forward. Um, we should, we should always be making things better for the, the people who come after us. Right. 
So I don't necessarily think there is a tooling thing that feels fresh and new, but it, uh, it does feel like, and I, I don't like this term, um, XOPS, but it does feel like with the conversations around things like XOPS and platform engineering that we are finally getting to a place where people don't think that DevOps is a buzzword and mm-hmm. that like cultural shift is is finally actually just like acceptable as like this is the way we do things. This is the way things are better. This is the way we can move forward. And every time I see somebody with a new DevOps derived buzzword, like GitOps, for instance, I get excited about that because I would like to see fewer silos within organizations. I I would like to see more cross-team collaboration. And so it, it excites me every time some niche industry decides to pick up the, the, the culture side of the DevOps transformation and um, start talking to each other, start doing things in a more compassionate and intelligent way, you know? Yeah, I do. God, I think we've covered so many things. I, I kind of wanted to throw out there, is, is there anything that you really, really wanted to talk about and we haven't gotten to? Ooh, from a technology perspective, I, I would just like to say that um, op- open source always needs more contributors, regardless of the way you're contributing. You should never feel like you're not technical enough to contribute to open source just because you're not an engineer or you're not a technical writer. There, there is a job for you in, in open source, and we never, um, we never have enough people to get the job done as efficiently as we would like. And it's not just the Kubernetes project. It's not just Linux Foundation projects. It's every project out there under the sun. And um, contributors and maintainers are generally very, very friendly. Um, we, we, we want more help. So we're not going to be rude to you. We're not going to be weird. We don't think you're stupid. Um, just talk to us, please, because we need, we need help. I love it. <laughs> and, and maybe if I could add, yeah. um, you, you can learn the tech stuff. You can. Learning the human stuff might be a little harder. That's true. But yeah. You can learn the tech stuff. I went to a coding boot camp and I turned out fine. Given enough motivation to solve a problem, you will somehow pick up the skills to solve it. You sure will. You sure will. And also it's a fun community. You'll make great friends. I made a lot of really, really good friends just through being in the open source community and through like being terminally online on Twitter. But, you know, that's its own thing. Most of my friends are fellow open source nerds. Yeah. Huh. Funny how that works out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, cool. Um, I've, I've loved talking to you today. I suspect everybody listening has, has really enjoyed it as well. I would love to do it again. So, uh, so everyone, hopefully, if she's willing, yeah. stay tuned for that. <laughs> yeah, have me on again. I'm available. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.